As we get started, um, if you're joining us just now, we're not a part of our earlier meeting. Today we had our annual meeting. It's our annual business meeting. We vote on the budget. We give reports. We talk about vision and talk about a number of different things. And one thing that we need to mention, actually two, um, the, uh, the, the meeting is open until tomorrow. So if you came in, you're a member, you received uh, a ballot, you can go ahead and complete that and turn that in either at the conclusion of the service. If you have questions, ask folks uh, your questions and then you can get that ballot to us by five o'clock tomorrow. That'll be great. Second thing, we, we forgot to mention, several people have asked, it's the only reason that I'm uh, mentioning this, several of you ask about the sale of the property, the land. Uh, we, we thought that pretty much everybody knew that, but apparently not, so that property has been sold, okay? Deer Creek Public Schools, they'll be building an elementary school uh, on that property that was sold for $1.3 million that has been put into an instrument and uh, interest-bearing instrument which will allow us to do some things capital expenditure-wise. And so we, uh, we left that out in the earlier meeting and uh, just wanted you to be aware of those things. Today, we're continuing. I, I talked about three things in the annual meeting. This is a continuation of that, but it's a standalone message entitled Revival, Revolution, and the Ordinary Christian Church. I want to read a verse of Scripture that is going to, we're going to jump forward. We've been in 1 Timothy now for, this is the 14th sermon uh, out of 1 Timothy, but we're going to jump forward. We'll come back to this verse um, after a while. But we do want to look at a verse to guide our thoughts today of the importance of the local church and God's plan for what He's doing in the world and in our world particularly. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, Paul says, I am writing these things to you. I'm writing these things to you. Timothy, you're the young pastor, the leader of the church at Ephesus. So I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And in case you're wondering what that is, it is the church of the living God. And then he uses a very powerful metaphor. metaphor. He says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And from that, we will talk about revival, revolution, in the ordinary Christian church. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Everything that we do, the gospel itself, how we live out the gospel is found right here in your word. Because with all of the, the lies and the falsehoods around us, there is one sure pillar and foundation or ground or buttress of the truth, your truth, and that is the Word of God. So help us as we move through this. Father, many of us have prayed for revival for many years. We pray that you might revive your people, not only in the church, but cause spiritual awakening to come to our land and to, indeed, the entire world. Lord, could it be that this is the time when you pour out a great measure of your spirit and usher people into your kingdom. We don't know, but we pray that it would come. So we thank you and praise you that we have the opportunity to hear and to respond to your message. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When Paul the Apostle shared this letter with Timothy, the pastor at the church of Ephesus, Paul was at the finish line of his life. Not all the dates are exact, but if you look at some of the timelines, you will discover that 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus were all written while Paul was in prison, and most likely it was only a matter of 
years, maybe a year, maybe months before the Apostle Paul would be martyred by being beheaded. So what is uppermost in his mind? There could be a lot of things that would be uppermost in uh, the mind of a leader of a church, but there was one thing that was uppermost in his mind as he wrote to Timothy to relate to the church at Ephesus. It was uppermost in his mind was the church, and I've got several bullet points from Scripture to verify that. Now, this might surprise you. You might say, well, what? now, wait a minute. Wasn't it the gospel? Aren't we gospel-centered? Aren't we all about the gospel? Folks, without the church as the pillar and the ground of truth, which is the gospel, there would be no gospel message. So Paul's focus, Paul's heart was for the local church. Look at, look at some of the things that he says in other places and how they point to his heart for the local church. Apart from these other things, Paul's going through a litany of the sufferings that, that he experienced as an apostle. He said, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Now, Paul, th- this does not mean that he went around wringing his hands fearful. But he had this deep concern for all of the churches that he had planted. What was that concern? He says it in Galatians, one of his earlier writings, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Now, I have not experienced the anguish of childbirth, and neither had the Apostle Paul. But he was using something that could be understood by those not only who have gone through it, but those who have watched that anguish. I'm in the anguish of childbirth until what? Until Christ is formed in you. I think Paul wanted a continued revival, the churches that he had planted. And then he goes on, therefore I endure everything for the sake of, Paul was a good Calvinist, so he had to throw this in. He means the church. But he says, for the sake of the elect, so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And the last one, I just have to mention this. In the book to the Ephesian church, he he, he says something that is very important. Look, church, we might be an ordinary church with an ordinary pastor, but this is how God wants his manifold wisdom to be known to the principalities and powers is through the local church. So Paul was all about the local church. Let's look and see just a little bit the place and the purpose. You've got your outline there in front of you. What I want to do is walk you through how the church at Ephesus was planted and then some various things that Paul would have said. These are emphases that I want to give to you. By the way, if that looks familiar, it should. Except for the last three things, we've already had sermons about those. In fact, two of the last three things, we've already had that. We haven't yet addressed the very last thing. But we're going to talk about the place and the purpose of Paul's writing to Timothy and the church at Ephesus. Now, the church at Ephesus would have been about 10 years old at this first writing. And if you look back, not now, but write down Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Because today, if you have time, or this week, you need to read Acts chapter 19. And it tells in several different parts the stunning story of, of how the church at Ephesus was formed by the gospel. And I think that this is a It's a template. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, about revival and spiritual awakening. But this is a template for how it happened. Here's what Paul did. He would come into town and he would start preaching, sometimes in the synagogue, sometimes down by a riverbank. Most often when he started preaching, he'd get kicked out eventually or there would be a riot. But he entered into town and he preached the gospel. New believers were organized into the church. Elders were appointed. 
Interesting, 1 Timothy gives instructions about how to choose elders, and then they were strengthened by the Word of God. Here's the thing you need to see about the church at Ephesus, and if you read Acts 19, you're going to see this. They had a vibrant faith. It was a gift. They had a vibrant faith in the face of opposition and even hostility. And true revival, I believe that this church experienced true revival. It came at a great cost. A radical divulging of their wicked practices and deep repentance from their idolatry. Let me just read for you an excerpt from Acts chapter 19 about the power of the gospel. These are, these are new Christians, okay? They came out of an extremely wicked pagan culture. Now listen to what happened with them. Chapter 19, book of Acts, verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers, brand new, came confessing, but that's not all. It takes more than just confessing confessing and divulging their practices. What practices? They were divulging the evil and the wickedness, not only of their hearts, but what they had been involved in. Verse 19, and a number of those, watch this, who had practiced, this came out of that heart, the old heart, who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together. These are the magic books. Brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. They had a public book burning. Okay? So their confession led to divulging and led to the burning of those things that once entrapped them. Now this is significant. Sometimes we read over these things. Do a little study on your own sometimes. And it's going to come alive. And they counted, this is important, that's why, that's why Luke put it in here. They counted the value of them, all of the books that were burned, and found it, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Hang on to your hats. 50,000 pieces of silver. How much would that be worth today? Conservatively, if a piece of silver was a silver denarii, a day's wage, typically, a non-silver. But if that was what he is talking about, and most likely it is, 50,000 of those would be in today's value about $1.5 million worth. If they were talking about a silver talent, it could be that, probably not. It would be somewhere over a billion dollars. They didn't just come confessing. They came turning. They came burning. And when I said a minute ago, and you might have thought, well, that's just you know, the part of the sermon, they're following Christ and they're living in Christ came at an incredible expense. And that's Acts 19. So here we are, the writing of Timothy. Here we are, and we're 10 years later, and the fire was cooling off. That, that's, the, that's the impression that you get, okay? The fire that once burned, I'm not talking about just the burning of the books, but the fire that once burned in their hearts that caused them to live that kind of life following Christ, it was cooling off. They needed a revival. They needed a real revival. They needed a revival based on truth that would lead, now get this, to every one of them aligning themselves with the Scripture, both in doctrine, what they believed, and then how they lived. 
for the last month or so, I think you would really have to be a hermit if, having not heard. You may not know a lot about it, but there has been this thing going on called the Asbury Revival. Anybody know what I'm talking about? People have been asking me, people in church, people just casual conversation, they know I'm a pastor, so they've been asking, what do you think of the Asbury Revival? I've looked at it. I've not been there. I've looked at clips. I've watched some things. I have some concerns. Every revival revival has concerns. By the way, the revival of 1735 called the Great Awakening in this country, Jonathan Edwards, he had concerns. And he was the cause, primarily the preaching of the Word. And so, yeah, there are concerns, but is... Is something happening? And so here is, the, here is what I basically shared with people. Two things. I share this with you. If somebody asks you, you can just go to the Scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit with your attitude. It's easy for me because I, I really gravitate toward the second thing, not just the do not, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. That's where I migrate to. And I can become a little bit cynical. So I have to remind myself, I think we all ought to remind ourselves, let's wait and see. Don't quench the Spirit. Is the Spirit doing something? Well, they shut it down. The president just said, it's over. Somehow other students are getting in on it. Have they been cued? I, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But it, it's even reached Oklahoma. It's even reached Norman. And this is a movement primarily of students. Now, we know that students are not adults. And so can it get messy? Yeah. But here is, here's my counsel, church. Don't quench the spirit. That, we're not going to be able to anyway. But test. Not everything that glitters is gold. There could be some things that are going on there that really need to be tested by what? By the Word of God. In fact, there was another move many, many years ago. As the day of Pentecost came and then Peter was preaching and the apostles are preaching their, their sermons and all of a sudden... Sudden, several of them get thrown into prison and they get reprimanded by the religious authorities. Don't preach that stuff. And Peter just says, we, we, we got to say what God says. And they wanted to kill him except for a guy named Gamaliel, one of the, 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 the priests. And here's, here's his counsel. He said, so in the present case, I tell you, this is interesting. Keep away from these men and let them alone. I, I, I don't know how much I would have any kind of authority, things that are happening out there anyway. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You can quench the Spirit in your own heart. I don't know that you can keep the Holy Spirit from revival when He wants to send revival. So you might even be found opposing God. So they took His advice wisely. And I hope you'll take my advice. There's another thing that's happening, and, and it just kind of dovetails for me, for Jan, maybe for some other people in this room. Because I've been asked about, have you seen the movie, The Jesus Revolution? I kind of chuckle and I say, seen it? We lived it. Interesting. You know, you, church, you do not have to travel to Asbury to have revival. We didn't have to travel 
to Southern California to experience what God was doing. Now, again, oh, it, it's messy. There's a lot of stuff. The movie is, is decent, and it, it really brought back memories. Explo 72, we were there. We were, we were hippies, kind of. I refer to my lifestyle back then. I was a weekend hippie, okay? I went to school. I held down a job, but on the weekend, you know, peace. Yeah, I was kind of a weekend hippie. Some of you heard my story. I'm telling you that the Spirit of God, one evening, at a dead end on 720 Stone Street, street that ran right in front of the, uh, the high school, arrested me. Now, the Spirit of God always, this is interesting, He always works with the Word of God. I had not been in church in three and a half years. I was a mess. But that night, the Spirit of God took the Word of God that a faithful preacher in a little missionary Baptist church had preached when I was young and growing up, and he took that word, I like to say it like this, yeah, the Holy Spirit was the spark that gets the fire going. You, you remember that cheesy song. The Holy Spirit was the spark, but the Word of God was the kindling that inflamed my heart, and I cried out to God, and I said, God, I, I, need, I need you to change me. And there were a bunch of other. I'm telling you, this, the, church, the collegiate church that we attended had to create a, a, a separate service for collegiate students. And it wasn't just ex-drug addict hippie types. It was jocks. It was fraternity people. It was all kinds of people that were coming together and, and worshiping and hearing the Word. And this is what is significant. I say revival, revolution in the ordinary church. UBC, University Baptist Church, was an ordinary church that the pastor just faithfully preached the Word, and we sang songs of praise and worship to the Lord. And Jan, she was already plugged in. I got plugged in. The Sunday after that encounter with the Lord and with the Word, I know it's hard for you to imagine, hair, just long hair, and I got up, I found a suit, didn't even know I still had one, wore it, and I went to church and sat in the back row. And I, I almost didn't miss a, a Sunday after that. See, real revival came to me, and I knew that somehow the church was involved, an ordinary church, just hammering out the details. Somebody says, well, did you get discipled? Look, I looked for people to disciple me. Some people say, well, you, you got to find, I looked for people to disciple me. Tell me the Word of God. How can I live this? Teach me about justification. By the way, do you know Jonathan Edwards? was preaching a series on justification when the First Great Awakening broke out. And people in his church started responding, and that's me, and I need to get saved. And he, he kind of quieted them down and said, let me finish my sermon. Such was the outpouring. The Word of God, the Spirit of God. By the way, I, I, it's not been a perfect journey. I've had ups and downs like every one of you, but for 51 years. That spark that took the kindling, again, of the Word of God, ignited a fire that has not been snuffed out in my life. Could God be doing that again? I don't know. And there were plenty of guys that fell away, guys that got excited for Jesus shallow-soiled hearers, they fell away. But there were some, out of that little, the University of Arkansas, out of that little group of people, you ever heard of Family Life with Dennis Rainey? He was a part of that right then at that time. 
That's where that ministry rolled out of that. He got together with Don Meredith and they started Family Life. The two largest churches in Arkansas now were pastored, they both retired now, by guys who were at UBC at that time, Robert Lewis and Robert Cup, Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Northwest Arkansas. So I'm saying that God did some significant things from just ordinary guys that said, wow, I want to follow this Jesus. I want to leave behind these things of my former way of life. And that's, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something. I just, I just hope that we see it. We see this turning away from sin, like in the book of Acts. Those folks at Asbury, I, I'm, I'm looking for that, the confessing, the divulging, the burning of the old life. And then the plugging into the church. I, I just don't believe re- revival will be sustained if it's apart from the local church. And that's why I've put really fast, bullet point fashion, look at your notes, we're going to go through and review what we've already talked about, what we will talk about. Here is what Paul told Timothy, here's how you keep the revival going, all right? I guess I was looking for somebody to shout hallelujah and fall on their face. Or... Now, I, I, I'll tell you what will happen when that revival comes to us individually or, or whatever, prayer will be a huge component of that. You won't have to tell people that there's a prayer meeting today at 5. They'll seek it out. So, we'll see. Okay, Paul's standard of conduct in the ordinary church, number one, he said, please prevent the pollution of false teachers. That's in the first part of chapter 1. Vance Havner said this, Satan is not fighting churches, he's joining them. And if you think that's an overstatement, look at what Paul said, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He'd love nothing better than to worm his way into a solid Bible-teaching church that, that we're seeing that spark come and people change and destroy the work with false teachers. And that's why leaders, now listen to me, we've said this before, leaders, not just elders, teachers, ABF teachers, teachers of our students, teachers of our children, husbands, your leaders, fathers, your leaders, and we are charged not to quench the Spirit, but to test everything that comes into the church and reject the bad, get rid of it, and keep the good. And any teacher or preacher ought to long for the kind of noble-minded Christians that the Apostle Paul found in Berea, that believe the Word is inspired, it's authoritative, but also that it is sufficient for everything that we need. Let's look at the second point, promoting the power of the gospel to save sinners. Now, this goes right with what we're talking about. Look, if you're here today, you've you've never really understood the gospel. Christ was crucified for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And if you've never really understood that's me. I'm a sinner. The penalty for my sins is death. It's hell. But God in His goodness and mercy and wisdom sent Jesus Christ to be the sufficient sacrifice for sinners and then to be raised on the third day. And that's where we came in verses 12 through 20 of chapter 1 where Paul said, I was, I, I was at the, the front of the line. I was the chief of sinners. And the message, do you remember what we said? It's simply this. God saves sinners from the penalty and from the power of their sins. Now, the penalty is immediate. That's justification. The sanctification part of that takes a lifetime where every day we're applying the gospel. 
and, and, and God is showing us areas either of identity or activity that we need to put away. We need to, to burn and apply the gospel to that so that we can move forward. And someday, someday we will be delivered in glorification from the very presence of sin. And again, Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. We read it a minute ago. I think that's what was happening. You know, if you put that together, they burned, they burned all of their books. What are they saying? They're saying, guys, you know, I used to live in this. I used to be this. But no longer. I'm not doing because I'm, I'm different. And the world will say that's a bad thing. God says that's a good thing. Let me show you a couple of verses that kind of go with this. Paul writing to the Corinthians. Oh, the, you talk about a place. I, all of these, these pagan societies were so chocked full of any kind of, of, of thing that you might dream of doing in terms of sin. We look at our own culture today and we say, oh, we're a, we're a mess, folks. These people, were, they didn't even, until Paul got there, they didn't even have a church. That's all they could believe was their, the pagan deities. And so he wrote to the Christians at, at Corinth, he said, don't be deceived. Now, here's what I want you to notice, not particularly the, the, the type of sin, but I want you to notice that each one of these is a noun. Okay? What does that mean? Nouns and pronouns mean something. Language has those. Every language has those. So these are nouns, not necessarily the activity. The activity always grows out of the being. The doing grows out of the being. But watch this. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral it's a noun. That's a person who identifies with being sexually immoral and then lives it out. Idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. By the way, this list is not the only list in the Bible in the New Testament. So to say we're picking on one particular category, we're not. But, but here, is, here is what Paul, and we used this verse last week, but you've got to remember this. If any man is in Christ, if any person really, if any person is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. That's a noun. Old things have passed away. New things have come. That's an identity statement. And for the Apostle Paul, and listen, church, I, I, I know that there are Things within our cultures and our culture, pressures that want to redefine and realign. But Paul, in his wildest dreams, would have never told the Ephesian church or the Corinthian church or the church at Heritage look, I know that there are some of you who identify, I used to be a blasphemer. Guess what? I'm just a blaspheming Christian. Hyphenated Christianity is all around us. Oh, well, we've got a place for you. The blasphemer Christians are over here. Well, I'm a magic arts Christian. Oh, we've got a place for you. And so all over the congregation, that would be so ludicrous, so outlandish if everybody was identifying themselves with a former lifestyle. And that's why he said, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. We are all the sons and the daughters of God. We bring certain bents, proclivities to the table. Each one of us does. But in Christ, we have a new identity. We are in Christ. And the old things have passed away and the new things have come. Do you want revival in your life? Do you, want, do you want to be saved if you're not saved? That's a good old word. Saved from your sins. That means saved from your sins. Listen, 
when I was that, that, that college guy laying on that waterbed that night, 720 Stone Street, I said, God, save me. I just wanted to be saved. I wanted to, to not, I just wanted a new identity as well as a new lifestyle. Somewhere along the line, that preaching that that preached, I don't remember any specific sermon that A.D. Stuckey ever preached. But I just remember hearing the Word of God and having it in my heart and knowing that that was my only hope. Spirit of God showing me the Word of God. Jesus was my only hope. That's why kids back then, and if you see the movie, Jesus Freaks. And Jan and I, we, we have these old albums. She said, are you going to show pictures today? And I said, heavens no. <laughs> they wouldn't recognize us anyway. But it, 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 you know, the Time Magazine, the Jesus Revolution, she and a good friend of mine, Beard, he looks like the guy that, that played Lonnie Frisbee. That's another story. But he, he looks like that. And they're standing in front of the picture one way. And we're all doing the one way, one way. Because it, it was kind of... I don't know, it's kind of corny, but really not. We just, we really believe that Jesus was the only way because he is. <laughs> and when he saves, he saves. You know what he did when he saved me? He gave me a new, because of justification, he gave me a new standing. By the way, that's what he did for you. And here's what you wanted to do. Truly, if you were really born again, you wanted to stop the sin, right? And you wanted to fix the bent, whatever you're bent toward, and get it bent toward Jesus. And I'll say this at the very end, I think the key to revival is turn your eyes upon Jesus. Okay. Let's go through these next part, okay? Prioritizing prayer for those in authority. Prayer in general, but prayer for those who are in authority because God has instituted authority from government, civic, all all the rest of that, to, to authority in the home, to authority in the church. God loves order. He created the universe with order. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Parents, teachers, we throw that in there. Now, obviously, we know that that's a a spirit and an attitude because you never disobey God and throw out the excuse, well, I, I, I was just submitting. No, there's the highest authority, and that is we must obey God rather than man. Well, we talked about this last week. The next one, a passion for missions. Look, a church that is really revived is going to have a passion for missions. Oh, by the way, let me throw this out there. It's in addition to, if there's nothing written specifically about disobeying, obviously, if your authority wants you to go out and rob a bank, the Eighth Commandment says don't do that. But there's also a, a principle of conscience Conscience is a very powerful thing based on the Word of God. Don't violate your conscience for the sake of submitting to authority. Okay, I I had forgotten that I put that in. Okay, let's look at the, the next one, Passion for Missions. We talked about this last week. What would happen if the church became the missionary and then the preeminence of Jesus Christ as the only mediator We are exclusive when it comes to salvation. We are not inclusive. There are not many ways to get saved. There are not many saviors. There's one God and one mediator also between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. No matter what popular speakers I mentioned several weeks ago, I've I've loved to listen to Tony Evans. But, but he, has, he has become, at least in some of his writings, an inclusivist. That you can get to heaven without believing in Jesus, specifically, as long as you're sincere. That, that's a, a kind of a boiled-down version. 
So that's why, don't quench the Spirit, but test everything that comes into the church. Popular authors, all the rest of that. Now, the last three things, I'm just going to ball them all together. Preserving the biblical identities and roles of men and women. We did a sermon on that. A sermon on promotion of biblical roles and men, uh, men and women in the church. We're going to do that next week. And then... In the days ahead, we'll start talking about placing godly men in leadership roles within the church, the requirements for elders. All of these are important. In fact, I was pleasantly surprised talking about the identity. Men and women in the church, I'm jumping ahead to the message that I'll Lord willing, be presenting this next week about men and women and, and leadership in the church. And Southern Baptists have a statement on that in the Baptist faith and message. And I never thought I would see them do what they did just in the last week with several, a handful of churches who have blatantly ordained women as pastors. And they talk about it and try to get out of it, but that's what they have done. And the executive committee disfellowshipped those churches. Rightly so. In order to stay with what God says. Be here next week if you have any questions about that, if there are things churning up there. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Okay, last point. How do we revive real revival in the church? So you look at Acts 19. Again, I hope you'll read that today or this week, and you're going to see a church whose members, 100% of them, I, I doubt it. But for the most part, they were brand new Christians, and they were on fire, and they were growing in sanctification. And Paul, in the next chapter, Acts chapter 20, stops off at Ephesus, Miletus, and he gathers the elders and, and he warns them, look, there are going to be people that come into your church, they're savage wolves. They want you to be drawn away from the truth. And then he wrote these letters instructing Timothy to instruct the church. And the church at Ephesus did what they were supposed to do, except for one thing. Do you remember what that was? We don't really get a picture of it. We don't know what happened in the time between the writing of these letters. And about 30 years later, we come to John's writing, the book of Revelation. And which church does he begin with? He's writing to the seven churches. I know there are different ways that these seven churches can be interpreted. I, I, I understand that. But this is at least a message to each church. And he said this to the church at Ephesus. Now watch this. This could happen at, this could happen at our church. I, maybe it already has. I have this against you. Jesus is saying this to the church at Ephesus that you have abandoned the love you had at first. A love that said one way Jesus, the only way. A love that was willing to give up tens, if not hundreds of thousands dollars worth of things that were once precious to them. That kind of zeal and love that focused on Jesus. And here's what he said. Here's the solution to it. Here's how real revival can come. Remember. And, and this last week has been a good time for me to go back and remember that first love experience and ask myself, am I still doing those things that I did at first? And then he says this, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Here's a church that had fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place 
unless you repent. Now, several verses before that, if you go back and read Revelation chapter 2, here's what you're going to discover. They were commended. They were commended for doing things. They were commended for testing false prophets. But Jesus said, so serious is your loss of zeal, love for me, that if you do not repent of that and come back to that focused zeal of Jesus, we're not negating programs and methods, but we're saying that Jesus is the focus. And he said, if you do not come back to that zeal that you once had, I'm coming and I'll remove your lampstand. I haven't looked it up historically. I know that it happened after that. But if you go to Ephesus today, Izmir, it's just ruins. We don't even know where the, the church was, except they met at the Hall of Tyrannus. We don't even know where that was. So how do you, okay, individually, by the way, Demas, do you remember that name, Demas? I'm, I'm using this to apply individually. Demas was probably with Paul in jail when he wrote a, 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 this letter to 1 Timothy because by the end of 2 Timothy, something had happened to Demas. The fire went out, and it's recorded, 2 Timothy, the last part of it, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And that doesn't mean just a geographical, spatial kind of deserting. He had deserted Paul in his hour of greatest need. He's deserted me, having loved this present world. And then these last two verses are really for the church, for our church. can't preach this to every church. I wish I could. Something similar to it. But here, here's what he says. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows. Lonnie Frisbee was... We don't know that the guy that was the, the main preacher began with Chuck Smith and the Jesus Revolution. Was he a Christian? Was he not a Christian? I don't know, but God knows. And it's really not about Lonnie Frisbee. He died, and he has faced eternity. It's really about us. The Lord knows who are th those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's not going to save you. That's coming out of your justification. But here's the real key to revival. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, that's the work of sanctification, from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I know that there are those of you in this audience that want revival. I've talked to you. Some of you have been praying for revival for years. But according to what Paul says to Timothy, that last one, let me see if I can get that back. doesn't matter. I read an application of that, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. God will serve revival only on clean plates. Not perfect. Ordinary, normal Christians getting together Sunday by Sunday, hammering out the Word of God, helping people grow in sanctification, getting, getting ready for glorification. But in the midst of reviving. So the invitation today is really simple. Repent and believe.
Is there really anything else? Repent and believe. And for those of you who, again, if you came today and, and you're, 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 not, you're not a Christian and you know it, uh, in Baptist churches we talk about an invitation, an invitation to repent and believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean that you change geography. Walking down to a particular place doesn't save people any more than going to a particular place in Kentucky gets you revival. It's what goes on in the heart with repentance and faith. And if you're not aware of any gross sin in your life or anything like this, here, here is the thing I think growing out of this sermon today. Repent of in any way growing cool in your zeal for Jesus. And ask God to help you fix your gaze on Him who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, I thank you for what you do in your church. And it's, uh, Lord, some, sometimes we look and see and we wonder. But the real question is not, did you send revival to Asbury or, or are you sending it to students down in Norman or any place else? The real question is, do I want revival in my life? It'll only be as costly as my life, but then you've given your life for me already. And so, Father, help everyone in this room to focus fix their gaze upon Jesus. And for those who need to come to know Him today, I pray that they would seek out someone, talk to that person, a friend, or one of the pastors here about how to know Jesus Christ personally and how to grow in Him. Father, do a work in us. Send revival to our church and send an awakening to our land. And Father, we will give you the praise and the glory for any work that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.